This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. That's Zach, that's Eric, that's Matt. Guys, we are digging into Nehemiah 5 today. I'm very, very excited to dig into Nehemiah 5. Um, you know, when you get into the first four chapters, one thing that I notice is I have a I talk about Nehemiah five and I look forward to Nehemiah five or really to anything in Nehemiah is I usually focus on the first four chapters because that's where the most stuff you know with without you know chapter three being as exciting that's where kind of the most stuff goes down but there's a major shift with Nehemiah five right? Because, you know, we've been talking about defense and we've been talking about, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And we're going to make sure that we're vigilant, which we talked a lot about last week and a biblical defense of self-defense. And man, those are kind of banner episodes, but now we're starting to get into what is happening with the people. There's some damage that's, that's coming to these people. And again, reminder, this is a people that has been downtrodden for generations, right? They've been beat up. They've been, you know, mentally destroyed, and the rebuilding of the wall is almost like a metaphor for the rebuilding of who they are as an attitude, as a people, as a personality. And in the first uh, two verses here in Nehemiah 5, <coughs> now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. That's very important, against their Jewish brothers. Not against Geshem, not against Tobiah, not against Sanballat, against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So at this time, when the word or the the work of the Lord rather is taking place, they're rebuilding the walls. Nehemiah has come in. You know he eventually kicks the door down and he's getting after it. People are starving to death, and the reality is, is because the men were working on the wall, some in defense, some in actual working, as we've talked about at length at this point. But in doing that, it made it harder for them to provide for their families. And so there's a practical element here that this is a severe crisis that involves everyone, and if not addressed, will affect the work that's going on. And so for me, this is a hard left turn in terms of what we're looking at with Nehemiah. Apparently, I'm the only one that thinks that. You know how much I hate dead air, and every single one of y'all looked at the other people. Matt, you breathe the hardest, so you have to talk now. You have to talk now. Well, you know, I think, obviously, they are... I think this this kind of speaks to like the just the trials and what happens when you're so hyper focused that you you forget about the hard things that happen in in doing the muck and the mire like there's a cost to everything and they're toiling and they're laboring and they're being harassed by and surrounded by their enemies that there is this okay well now we don't have food we don't have grain and so I think you can sometimes forget the things that you need, but, but you, you can't overlook that, I guess. Um, well, think about from, if, from a leadership perspective, again, if you're, if you're in a position where you're leading big teams or you're part of a team or you're leading your family and you think about the times, maybe it's now, maybe it's in the past, or maybe it's coming up where you've got a difficult task that you need to achieve, like one of those things that really drives everybody together, it's very easy for you to forget 
what's happening inside or what's happening with your team, the practical elements. And I think that's what makes leadership so difficult. Uh, when you, some of the guys we've talked about uh, the last couple of episodes that focus a lot on leadership get into this. Really effective leaders understand that balance. And, and it's not just about you know, the biggest, baddest message that we're going to go out and conquer this. It's being effective, which means you got to care for what's happening inside your house while you're pursuing this large objective. It's difficult. We've also got to repeat the message too. Like this, I think this is also an indication of how forgetful we are as a people, you know, and, and, you know, Exodus talks about God literally delivers his people out of slavery. And then because they're not eaten, they're not eating the way they think they should be eating. They're like, well, can't just take us, just pay, take us back to Egypt. We'll be slaves there. And I think this is, this is kind of a, a little picture of that too. Like, we're, we know what we're doing is right. And we know what we're doing is, is provisioned by God. But now we're, we feel like we're in this, this place of want and need and, and don't have. And I think there's a little bit of that going on too. How forgetful, how forgetful are we? I, I, well, and I know that like me uh, personally, I have a tendency to just work really hard on one thing and I can let other things kind of go and slide. And maybe there's some, I have some margin there, but it's really easy for me to get caught just on that one thing. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh man, yeah, I had this, I should have been doing. It's like, try, it's like eating one thing on your plate at a time. And then you, by the time you get to the best thing, it's already cold, you know? So, um, you know, I see that maybe as partly what's going on here. So. so, so, I mean, just to highlight it to your, I mean, in the midst of a great work for a great God, the Jews had a great cry among the workers. They were not crying out against the Samaritans or the Ammonites or the Arabs, but against their own yeah, people. Own, yeah. Jew was exploiting Jew, and the economic situation had become so desperate that even the wives, who usually kept silent, were joining in the protest. Mm. Leadership requires you to be on point and engaged from every aspect all the time. When that's what you see from really great managers, <clears throat> the best managers are not just managing their employees, they're managing the employees and their families. Right. Because you will have those hard charging, we're going to get it done regardless of the cost type people. The cost might be someone's family. And if that cost becomes too high, you're not going to have that employee anymore because yeah. they're going to make a big change. Because we all have heard these stories of these guys that they focus too much on work. They're doing the 80 hour work weeks and then all of a sudden they lose their family. And then they make a huge major adjustment in the opposite direction. Okay, I'm going to work a part-time job, you know, at Chick-fil-A and then I'm going to, you know, just work, you know, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to give as much time to you, which... Women will complain about anything. Sorry, ladies, but it's just like they'll complain if you're not making enough and then if you're making too much and they're not spending enough time, you're never going to satisfy everybody. Either your wife's going to be disappointed, your kids are going to be disappointed, your boss is going to be disappointed, you know, the president of the Chamber of Commerce is going to be disappointed. You can't give enough of yourself to everybody. You can't be five stars right. in all areas of life. Zach, can you read three, four, and five, please? There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get the grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And so what's being described here, again, it's not appropriate to look at this as chattel slavery, uh, like we saw with the African slave trade. What we're seeing here is basically temporary debt slavery, where you would 
you know, mm-hmm. take one of your kids and they would go work off part of your family debt. Maybe you would go work off family debt. Maybe you would sell your entire family, including yourself into debt. Um, you know, it's not the same shadow slavery, like I said, but it's still bad. It's a direct attack on the nuclear family. And that's the thing that we talk about. I remember when, you know, Black Lives Matter was coming out in 2020, people were trying to figure out what that organization's all about. And it's like, well, let's go to their website and see what it's about. And one of the things is like, yeah, we want to destroy the nuclear family. And people are like, well, that doesn't sound good. It's like, no, this is a grift. And that is one of the things that they're telling you. They're showing you their hand and you're still betting into them. Like, this is not really a good plan. But this has a direct attack on the nuclear family because it's going to be taking the father out of the family, but it's also going to be destroying the kids. Now that you see women lamenting publicly, that can't be good for what's going on in these Jewish households. But also the, the important thing here is when they said they are mortgaging their fields or vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine, that goes back to verse one, where it talks about against their Jewish brothers, because in this time, as long as I understand this correctly, I'm trying to remember from memory, you were not to take loans out uh, with interest from other Jews. Like that was, that was against the law. You couldn't do that. That's part of the mosaic law for sure. Right. But also here too, they're like, because of the financial hardships and obviously the wall added to that. So this is just amplified by the wall. When you're going into that like bond service or bond servanthood, um, you're able to buy back your debt. But now they're in a situation where that seems like it's so desperate that that's, that looks impossible. So you just, it's it's just everything stacking up. Yeah. Snowballing. Yeah. It's like, okay. Famine building the wall. That's obviously just eating away everything. Now I'm in bond servanthood, but now I, I can't, I don't even think that I can buy back my debt to get out of where I'm at. So I'm just, I'm stuck. It's a helpless situation yeah. where it's like, Again, before Nehemiah arrived, they were helpless, but they thought that was normal. Mm -hmm. So this has to have maybe a little bit of extra sting because they're seeing, they're seeing the light, right? Mm -hmm. They're seeing a way out of their plight as a people. And now it's just like, crap, you know, because of this work that is saving us, it's exactly what you're talking about in Exodus where it's like, gosh, maybe it would be better to be Pharaoh's slave again, because at least we had food, right? We didn't have to eat manna every day. It's one of those types of things. You see the same thing with people that have been in penitentiaries or prisons for decades and decades. And then they get out and they're like, oh, this is hard. Like it's easier to not have to make all these decisions. I think about Yeonmi Park, whenever she eventually made her way from North Korea to South Korea, which took her through China and Mongolia and all those types of things. She remembers being overwhelmed in South Korea at options because in North Korea, you're told what haircut you're allowed to have. You're told what clothes to wear. You're told what to think. And now you're in South Korea. You can wear your hair however you want. You could, you know, do your makeup. You could buy jeans, which was a shocking thing for her. You could eat wherever you want. And then she got to America and she's like, what in the world is all that? There's wide open spaces over here. I can just take off running into the middle of a field. And it's just... That was almost more paralyzing. Yeah, we're we're there's so much abundance here. What's there's a there's a movie or a quote in uh, the other guys. It's uh, this guy's talking about America. And he's like, America is the baconator, a double baconator, extra bacon. We live in so much abundance that it's just there's so much. I'm starving stuff. now. I'm starving. Thanks a lot. What were you gonna say, Zach? So imagine this. I mean, I, I guess uh, these guys are busy building the wall. So I don't know that they're necessarily coming home to the dinner table, sitting down with their wife and having a discussion. But I could imagine something like, if God's helping us do this, why are we starving? Why are we giving everything up? And, and the way I'm seeing it is more like maybe, you know, your wife is asking you a bunch of questions. So what's the application now? 
in your world and your life, you know, do you find yourself in a circumstance where you feel like you're giving something to the Lord that you're progressing in that, but there's a whole part of your life that's just not coming along and you're, you're catching, you know, some, some feedback that's, that's maybe, you know, hindering. I'm just thinking of like, uh, there's many instances in the old Testament where, Things seem to be okay, and then all of a sudden, there's like this, you know, there's hardship. There, people are dying, and there's a famine, and you know, whatever. And you know, you come the the priest or the the prophet or whatever goes with for the Lord, and the Lord's like, there's sin in your camp, and because of that, there's distress. And so that I mean, that's what we see yeah, here is we see brothers sin, yeah. brothers taking advantage advantage right. of brothers, and that's just completely not right. So I mean, you see God is using this opportunity then as we talked about to start working into the people's hearts uh, and to start ridding them of this that's and it. and then rebuilding them, re- certain, ridding them of the sin. He's, and cir- he's circumcising their hearts, yeah, right? That's right. I think there's a, there's also a, an a- aspect of sanctification here where when you become a Christian, I think a lot of times people think my life's going to be great now. Jesus is my homie and life's going to be good. I'm going to go make a million dollars and it's because I'm a Christian and I think God wants to answer our prayers. Sometimes it's yes. Sometimes it's no. And sometimes it's not yet. And I learned that from my pastor, Terry fakes, who's a very, very wise man, but that, that, that's so true. We want, we want yes or no, but sometimes we're not prepared for the not yet. And while they're yes, there's sin. I think there's an aspect of they're being sanctified here too. Like, it, like in Exodus, we're enslaved. God brings us out, but then we're so discontent that we want to go back to slavery, back to slavery. <laughs> After we watched God, the, the creator of the universe, like pull us out of slavery. We want to go back because we're not eating the food we want to eat. And I think there's a sanctification process that's going on here too. They've seen the plagues. Yeah. They've seen the parting <laughs> of the Red Sea. It reminds me back when you see the people that watch Jesus's ascension and it says, and some of them doubt it. It's like, what, what else do you need to see? Like, Where are the, the strings? Thing. How about, how about uh, Th- Thomas? He's with Jesus for three years, watching his miracles, watching him heal. He has his faith in him, but he's like, nah, I need to see the, the wounds in his hands and feet. He couldn't but, believe it. But isn't that just us? Because like Thomas, there's points in Thomas where he's like, if we're going to die, let's go. I'm ready. Right. I'm with you. And then, he, then, then he's like, I got I to gotta see this. I got to see the wounds. So like, I think there's, there's, we go through ebbs and flows too in our Christian walk where I, yeah, I'm ready to, I'm ready to march and knock down the gates of hell for Christ. And then I don't know. I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready. That feels like an iron sharpening iron situation. I appreciate the feedback. I mean, from everybody that we just had and thinking through that a little bit, I guess it was good for this to come out in these circumstances because you had men of God that were there. You had Jew taking advantage of Jew. And it probably just would have continued on unchecked if it hadn't come about. So while they're rebuilding the nation and the wall and all that stuff, it had to be in the right order of things, but eventually they got to figure it out and, and get it aligned again. Absolutely. Eric, could you read six through nine? I can. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I hope so. Gosh. Well, why the delay? Here well, I am but, expecting. Uh, no. So six through nine. <laughs> you stop me if I go over because I'm looking at it. I've got like, big font here. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers, and I said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. 
So I called a great assembly against them, and I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what, are you, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Thank and you. stop. What version was that? <laughs> I don't know. Because <laughs> I'm like following the ESV and I'm like, oh my gosh, if he's reading the I message. I pull it up online and I, you know. Cursory. Well, that doesn't say that. You have a printed Bible so right tiny. there in front of you. Just move your laptop out of the way. Bring it close to your face. I'm no just one will lazy. Notice. That's fine. Great. We'll deal with that later. But okay. So in my version here in verse six, it says, I took counsel with myself. Mm-hmm. So this is yeah, Nehemiah yeah. writing. And that, that's so common for him. Right. He's very calculating. Right. So what he's not saying there is, well, I depended on my own uh, wisdom and I just kind of put a place together again. We've seen no evidence that he's relying on his own self throughout any of the first four chapters and into the fifth chapter of Nehemiah. But, you know, I took counsel with myself and he brought charges against the nobles and officials. That's obviously a big deal. But when you get into verse seven, this is where we're talking about usury. Uh, And the big thing about that, that's not a common word that we knew now or that we know now. That's exploitative taxation right? Uh, or it could be exploitative interest. Mm-hmm. And in this day, uh, the interest on loans could ex- easily exceed 50%. And I mean, you think about like current credit card interest rates, like they're criminal. Right. They're like half of that. Right. Like even the worst ones are just like half of that. You know what I mean? And so it was very exploitative. And again, it, it's, it was against the law, against the Jewish law to, to charge interest towards other Jews. But this is a very, very big deal because this is almost like a compounding negativity that was happening to the people because they were already starving. They were doing what it takes to get out of that situation by mortgaging themselves. And now their own people are taking advantage of them. I know we just got through talking about that, but man, like uh, that's still just a bad deal. I just want to kind of draw a little bit more on that and kind of talk a little bit about how bad that actually was. Yeah. I was just, uh, I'll say, I'll be quick, but you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, I, I think that's what I, that's what I keep hearing in my head. It's like, just because they can take advantage yeah. of the situation doesn't mean they should, should just because they could make some money, get, grab some land, what, whatever doesn't mean they should. It doesn't make it right. Yeah. They, and in God's, and in God's law and God's economy, by what standard we get a lot of our laws on how to treat people from the Mosaic law. And how do you treat the poor? If someone, if someone is going to go without and they need help, God's law calls for that to be a gift. You to give them something as a gift. You're not to exact something that can't be paid back. Like not only can they not pay you back for the money that you loan them, they certainly don't have money to pay you back interest. So you're supposed to view that as a, I am giving you this with no um, thought of you repaying me. And so that then that's, that's where I think Nehemiah probably had that real like pit of anger of what? These people can't pay back at all. Well, and whose resources are they? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think it's I, important. I think it's God's. I think that's, that's the answer you're looking for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Nailed it. Great job. <laughs> Zach tried to get you. No singers at this table. But then, but then it gets into verse 10, which is, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Now, the way I read it and the way I've 
come to understand this after study is that Nehemiah was part of the problem. Apparently he was also doing this. Now, some people will say because of verse six, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words that he was somehow shocked by what was happening. Some people have drawn the conclusion that uh, Nehemiah was actually loaning without interest. But uh, the majority of the people that I read said verse 10 is basically his confession that he was also doing this. I'm curious from you guys. I'm seeing some not so sure faces on the other side of the table. Is that not kind of what y'all gathered? Well, I, I would just say that based on what we're going to read later, I would kind of get the impression that he was pretty high, like character, um, and, and I'll just you know, we'll we'll save that for a little bit later. But um, because he wasn't taking what what was rightly his, if he wanted to, from the king, so I I'm kind of I, I didn't get that in, that same impression. I thought maybe you know it says after serious thought or when I counseled against myself, I, I I'm imagining him being really pretty pissed off about this, and it's the first time they didn't say and I prayed about this. Um, and maybe he did, but um, I don't know. I, it was my thought. I, I, can, I can tell you, so this is Wearsby's direct line. He just says, Nehemiah appealed to his own personal practice. He was lending money to the needy, but he was not charging interest or robbing them of their security. Nehemiah was not a hypocrite. He practiced what he preached. That's one opinion, I guess. Yeah, yeah and I, I what, did you, what did you see, Matt? Well, I, I think, um, again, this, I think this points back to Christ again because there is a redemptive cost that's being paid and the law and how God wants to carry out this redemption is this is a free gift. And our brothers have been, who have been sold to the nations, and that's all of us, have been redeemed. We have, they have been bought back. I have bought them back. And now you are trying to exact something else from them. That's a, that's a hard stop. They have been bought back for a price, for a price period. Yeah, I would say it looks like there, that, that's a great point, Matt. It looks like there is some um, differences in opinion here as to kind of what's happening, but it really doesn't change. And I don't know that it's fully the point because the way I read it is that he seems fairly convicted by himself. And, and maybe it's like he kind of sees, because I think when I was reading Moody or MacArthur or some of those, it was that was kind of the thought is like he even felt convicted, like he was so focused on the work that, you know, and I don't want to uh, misalign if I'm misquoting, but it's like they were so focused on the work that even Nehemiah and his team were doing the exact same thing, perhaps seeing a pragmatic approach to that. Like, hey, we, we need money for the wall. We need money to take care of business. And hey, we, we've got the money right now. Our, our people need, need this, but that's not really the point. Matt, if you could go ahead and read 11 through 13, I think this is where we get into the point. Gotcha. Uh, return them, return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. Uh, Go ahead and do 13. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I'm listening skills are hard. (laughs) I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So right there in verse 13, uh, we see, you know, shake out. I saw a lot of commentaries about the use of shake out and how Nehemiah was basically calling for a curse. If they didn't, they didn't do anything. He was basically calling, this isn't like a, another precatory, uh, prayer, but this is, or imprecatory, precatory, imprecatory, imprecatory, imprecatory. imprecatory yeah. It's not another imprecatory prayer, but he is like calling for God's judgment and, and a curse in this moment. 
But the overwhelming thing for me is I'm reading 11 through 13 is, gosh, Nehemiah doesn't seem like he's asking politely. And I was told reliably that Christians are supposed to be nice all the time and their words should never come off biting or judgmental or pointed or stingy or sticky or any of those things. But he's not asking politely of these men to you know repent and turn the other way. He's demanding it. So whether he's doing that off of his own conviction because he was doing it the same or he was always above board the entire way, he's he's literally demanding that they make changes and it looks like they acquiesce. And this I is mean, how could you be a I'm sorry, I just want to go back to this. <laughs> Everybody wanted to jump in on that. So, one. so I just want to go back because so on on verse six, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest from each of his brother. And I held a great assembly. And then it says, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us, etc." I mean, I don't, I can't understand how he could have a righteous indignation and anger uh, and stand on his own two feet with any sort of credibility unless he's saying you, you guys need to do. How did Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence and saying all men are created equal and still own slaves? <laughs> we are walking contradictions. Right. So that, that would be one answer to it. During this discussion, I, I, I would say I tend to lean more towards what y'all are saying and your understanding, yeah. but that's the thing all the time. Almost all the signers of the Declaration of Independence had slaves, yeah. and yet in order to get that signed and even have a country to begin with, they couldn't split the South off because the Civil War would have happened way earlier. So it's that, it's the tension of history. Well, I didn't sign up to talk about Thomas Jefferson with my question. I was just <laughs> looking specifically. You opened up Pandora's box, baby. <laughs> what am I supposed I, to do? I, Leave I, that hanging out there I in would, the ether? I would, agree with, I would agree with Zach on that point, but back to what we just read, I think, again, as it points towards Christ, this is not about interest. This is not about following the, um, the ceremonial law, this is about the two commandments that they're all built upon. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they are in direct violation of commandment one and two here. And that is, I think that is the main point of what, what gets Nehemiah is the law is written so that we know how to serve God and that we know how to serve our neighbor. And I think that's a point that can't be missed is that we weren't treating neighbors very well right now. Yeah. And and, and you got to think too, that God rebukes us. Mm -hmm. This is just an opportunity for Nehemiah to, to provide rebuke, but it's not for anything outside of love. You know, God loves, I mean, what, what is it? Uh, Revel, it's in Revelation, it's in Hebrews. I think I've got it pulled up there, but it says, you know, God rebukes those whom he loves, you know, so yeah. it's not, he doesn't do it to tear us down. He does it to accomplish his purpose, and, you know, and I, and I had this written down, a God who doesn't correct you is a fictitious God. You know, so if you, if you're, if you're out there just rolling around and you don't ever feel the Holy Spirit convict you or to feel the rebuke of God in your life, you may be serving a fictitious God. I agree with that. I think, I also think there's some real life application as it, as it speaks to the body of Christ today. We were all bought for a price, but how many churches do we go into where the body of Christ will say, Zach was bought for a price, but I need you to do this. And I think that's another thing that Nehemiah is speaking to is you are bought for a price. 
end of sentence. And we can require all these works to, to do whatever it is that fits us into that specific body. And I think that is a violation of God's law because Christ bought us full stop. There's not, there's not a requirement for us to then sell ourselves to anybody because we've already been bought. And I think, I think that that is speaking, I think that's speaking to that too. We're bought. That's the end of the sentence. Is that, am I wrong there? <laughs> is that crazy? No. 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 I, I, I guess depending on what your perspective is, one, one thing I was going to say is just, and, and I know you'll like this, is that it was kind of a, um, a public sin. So it was a public ordeal. So everybody had to come in together. And so he didn't let it fester once he found out. Mm. According to this, he had a lot of righteous anger. He brought everybody in. Because you could imagine, you could go to the nobles or the rich people individually and try to work something out. But he brings everybody in together. They discuss it. And as one, they all agree to it by saying amen. Mm. Um, which I think is a powerful way to get something done quickly. Yeah, and then they um, did it. It says, and then they yeah. did according to the promise. Yeah. Yep. When I was first starting... Being mentored uh, many years ago, the the gentleman I was sitting down with, he said, you know, I look for a certain kind of person. I said, okay, well, what kind of person is that? And he said, I look for fat people. I was like, uh-oh, okay, well, what are we talking about? Fat, P-H-A-T? Uh, he's like, no, no, F-A-T, it's an acronym. He's like, so I look for faithful, available, and teachable people. I was like, great. <clears throat> that's wonderful. And, and over the years, I, you know, I've kind of tried to live by that, just oh, trying to be faithful to whoever I'm meeting with or whoever's meeting with me um, and to be prepared, to be available and, and, and obviously be teachable. But I think one of the things that there was a time where I was, I, I requested, I said, you know, one of the things I don't ever see uh, discussed in our, in our individual meetings or our, our more corporate meetings is this idea of rebuke. And I, and, and as soon as I said that, I, I got pushed back like, oh, I don't, I don't know if that's a really good topic for us to discuss, you know, and have an hour long like deal on. And I thought that was really, really weird because it's very clear in the Bible that rebuke is, is a powerful and righteous thing that we should do. So I, I was wrote down, maybe I should look for um, not just a fat person, but a fart person. So faithful, <laughs> available, rebukable and teachable, it's you know, yeah, so. I don't know, <laughs> we could go frat. <laughs> No, There's other ways. No, <laughs> we need shirts that say just fats and farts. That's what we need. No context needed. If you're not a fan of this show, you will not get it, but fats and farts. Bring me well, your so, fats and farts. So that, that actually brings up something, and yeah, we're, we'll have enough time to kind of get into this a little bit. So we talked about a lot in the last episode, but we talked about this hesitancy by Christians that are more pacifistic in their orientation. The 11th commandment, be as nice as possible, never make anyone mad at all, and never make anybody feel negative feelings. So what ends up happening, though, from a sanctification, well, maybe not sanctification, from a discipleship standpoint, is we are not teaching our flocks how to rebuke. And so we are just figuring it out on our own how to rebuke, and then we do it wrongly or poorly or too severely. And so because our modern-day pastors don't want to re even rebuke from the pulpit, we're certainly not being discipled in how to appropriately and biblically rebuke our neighbor. And so doesn't that make it hard to love our neighbor as ourselves if we can't love them fully, including rebuke? It does, but it, it, it starts before that. Like we don't live in a time that puts emphasis on, this tells us 
how to rebuke. It also tells us what's rebukable. And if our basis... He lifted up his Bible for anybody yeah, not watching for, this. Yeah. Uh, like if our foundation isn't in the word, we don't know how to rebuke, but we also don't know what to rebuke. And I think a lot of times Christians will take the, they'll take the easy out and not go for the rebuke. And I know this is true from my own life because somebody might say, well, that's not, that's wrong. That's unbiblical. If you don't know, you're going to side on what you know. And Jesus tells us to love everybody. I do know that. And so I'm going to, I'm going to side on that and I'm going to, I'm just going to couch, I'm going to hedge my bets and I'm just going to say, okay, God, Jesus says just love. So I don't know if that's true what you're saying, but I don't know, but I'm just going to say Jesus loves. So if you're not in the word, and this is a call and an invitation to anybody watching, I didn't know it was rebukable either. And I didn't know how to rebuke. And I, I promise you, if you will commit to getting into the word, this is, this is in less than three years. I can now firmly stand on the truth and I can give an apologia of my faith or apologia, however you want a tomato, tomato. But like, if you're not grounded in the word, you don't even have a shot. Yeah. And how can you even know that there is something to rebuke or address unless you're living in relationship with people? I would argue, at least from my perspective, historically, you just attend church. Nobody knows me. Nobody knows what I'm doing. Nobody knows anything, right? It's not until we got involved in small groups or whatever your church calls them. If you're not in one, that's where the church happens. Mm. Uh, much of the church happens, in my opinion. And that's where you grow. And that's where I think there's an opportunity for somebody that has invested in you, that knows you, and that you're going to respect when they come and say, hey, look, I'm seeing something here you need to look at. You're, you're so right. This is where I get concerned, though. Because you're exactly right. That's where the hands and the feet happen. That's where, you know, yesterday, you know, there was, as of the recording of this yesterday, there were a couple of crazy wildfires in Oklahoma and one of them almost took out. There was within a mile of uh, people that are in our Sunday school. I, we're, they're called adult Bible fellowships at our church for no good reason whatsoever. Why in the world would you call them that? They're Sunday school classrooms, you weirdos. But like, there were a bunch of people getting ready. My wife and I were like, okay. They've got two kids and a dog. Uh, how can we house them here where everybody's taken care of? Like, we're already doing that. That's the hands and the feet. The problem is it's even hard to rebuke in small groups. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just throw a scenario out. Let's say there's somebody in your small group that's dating somebody else. Uh, they're not married, but you know they're living together and you know they're sleeping together. And you also know they're probably going to get married and both of them have previously been divorced and not because of death or adultery. Are we going to rebuke or are we just going to clap along as we do uh, their, you know, go to their wedding and celebrate them and do a shower and all those different things? When clearly, even if you're a red letter Christian, the words of Jesus would say, no, these people are committing an act of adultery. And that is a sin that is damnable that can send you to hell, as all sins are. And so I think that's the part is we're still gun shy to rebuke the people that we purportedly love. And I don't know that I necessarily have a point as it pertains to Nehemiah five here, but I guess that's more of a overall observation of community that we seem all too eager to rebuke somebody. This reminds me of something from my interview with Matt Griner, the, the drummer of Oxburn's red, you know, somebody that will share Jesus with the, the person making your sandwich at subway, but not with their brother. Because you could just share Jesus with the guy putting ham on your sandwich. And then if he rejects, it's like, all right, I'm taking my chips and I'm leaving. But it's like when it's your brother, you're actually pushing some relational chips to the center of the table. 
we're all too cowardly to do that because there might be some pain and some awkwardness happen, but we were willing to rebuke a stranger for their life decisions or for their sinful choices. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, where I'm going? Well, let's call that what that really is though. That's idolatry. That's I, I am worshiping the relationship that I have with my brother and the comfort that I have with my brother or whoever over the creator of the universe. And that's a sin. And idolatry is terrible. And so I think that's what that is. That's, I, is it, would you guys agree with that? I think, I think you're, you're worshiping something else over God. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're prioritizing what they think about you over what they actually need. That's really what it is. I mean, my son and I yesterday were just talking about that in, as it relates to sharing the gospel. And I said, wouldn't it be a shame if the people you hang out with, you don't get to hang out with for, the, for eternity just because you were worried about sharing the gospel with them because of the ramifications. I think the, I go back and forth. I, I don't know that I need to go to my brother or a family member. Maybe I do and have like a full throated gospel discussion. And I've done this and I've seen the results of some of that too. Or do you go Greg Kokel and put a rock in the shoe? And then from my perspective, you know, now having been into this for several years now, it's I'm getting questions because people see that my life has changed. So the, the, the change in me is causing its own witness. And then you can, Respond. Here's a little bit of my concern. And I originally, <clears throat> excuse me, was made aware of this. It was a Matt Chandler sermon from years, years ago when he was like, you know, you're taught in like church camp. And I know you didn't grow up going to church camp and I, I didn't really either. Um, but you, you learn in church camp, like you're going to be the one friend in your friend group. That's different. You're not, and it's all behavioral modification stuff. You're not going to drink and you're not going to watch R rated movies and you're not going to make out with girls and you're, you're, you're going to do all these things that all the, or you're not going to do these things that your friends are all doing. And then somehow, some way they're going to be like, you know what? That guy's different. I'm going to go up to him and ask him how they're different. You know, and then everybody like gives a thumbs up to the camera and then it becomes a cheesy Mentos commercial. Like, I don't know. And this was matching other points. Like, I don't know that I've ever met someone that did evangelism that way where they were just so good and so godly that people came up to him and said, Hey, you, your life seems to have a lot of fruit. Where's that fruit come from? Jesus. Awesome. Can I get some Jesus? I would like a double order of Jesus, please. So that's, I guess, yeah. a little bit of my concern where I would push on people. And I pushed on oh. Matt Griner. I would push on you as well is evangelism is not like this accidental thing. And I think it's Augustine who is like, you know, always share the gospel and sometimes use words or something like that. It's like, that's cute. It looks good on a bumper sticker, but like, you you have to share the gospel with somebody, the actual language of it. Otherwise, they're just going to be learning how to have per, proper amounts of behavioral modification. Matt, you're chomping out the uh, way. Get in here. Our life should be a witness, no doubt. But God gives laws to the Jewish people through Moses to be a witness to the nations. This is wrong regardless of where you live. You are going to be a witness to the nations so they know what is right and wrong. But the Bible also says... Faith comes through hearing. You know what you don't hear? You don't hear actions. You've got to preach the word. And again, this is just as much for me as it is anybody listening. The word should be preached and you should, you should be speaking to people. And I love Penn from Penn and Teller, his story about a Christian evangelizing to him. Yep. Yep. And he ends it with, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize to them? How much, if you think if you actually believe it, that the God of the universe sent his son to die for you on the cross so that you could have eternal life by calling on his name, by being covered 
by his blood. How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them that, to not, to not wish, I want you to be in heaven too. And to people that don't realize, Penn Jillette is a ardent atheist. Yes. He's a militant atheist. Yes. So that's why he's literally saying, why aren't you Christians proselytizing yeah. more? And he's absolutely right. I don't disagree with it. I mean, just from my perspective, when I say dropping rocks, that is proactive. So you are having discussions and you're planting seeds. I'm probably a little different uh, case study because I'm thinking about how to be effective. Yeah. So if you're doing that consistently and you're encouraging them to have to think through something on their own, I think then you can come back and continue. I yeah. Think, yeah. And there's, there's, uh, and I see it both ways really. And I agree all the way around. I mean, there, even in my practice, I mean, I spend most of my day educating people, you know, but we're also just talking too, you know? And so, uh, there, there are, there are strategies. I mean, asking a question, do you, where do you, all, where do you guys go to church? Where do you go to church? You know, or saying things like, you know, the Lord has really just blessed us this week. You know, th- things like that are, you're planting seeds, you're opening up little doors, right? So they kind of know they're getting the hint, hint kind of thing without you being like, so do you love Jesus or not? You know, whatever. But it does provide opportunities. Um, the more you, have the opportunity to spend time with that person. I would, I would say in general, at a high level, I agree with that to Matt's point. And this was the the point I made to Matt Griner, not Matt Grassmeyer sitting next to me. But the point I made to Matt Griner in the interview is you would be shocked to learn the number of people that have been going to church the rest of their, their whole life that don't know the gospel. They've never heard the gospel. They've heard you know, regardless of the church they go to, maybe they go to a legalistic church and they were taught all the do's and don'ts of Christianity, or maybe they went to a TED talk church where they were taught, you know, how this can apply to their bank account, how, you know, the Bible can apply to, you know, they're being nice to people and being, you know, fighting for justice or whatever. But it's like, they've never heard the good news of the gospel explicitly. They've always heard it implicitly. And so to a degree, that's actually what I feel like, like this is where, you know, a few weeks ago when we had um, a couple of different guys here at the table, I can't remember what song we were talking about, but we talked about the pastor at our church who is a deeply biblical man, a great uh, expository preacher of the word, but I am critical of some of the things that he's done before the midterm elections of 2022, before the, the Sunday, before the Tuesday election, he said, vote biblical values. And then he moved on. And I sat there slack jawed. I was like, what? That's it? Vote biblical values. Do you realize that some people will vote biblical values and then vote for the Democratic Party that thinks it's okay to kill babies up until the moment of birth and have it paid for by U.S. taxpayers and that that can happen for any reason chosen by the mother? Vote biblical values. Like people, as Matt has said, they don't pick up the book. They're not reading the book. And here you are using this slogan, vote biblical values. It's like, what do you mean? You have to elucidate it. And so it's like, It's like when you're communicating with somebody about the truth of the gospel, you don't need to pick around the edges. Like at some point you do have to give a full description of what the Bible is. You need to make sure that they have the availability to taste the true savoriness and sweetness of the gospel in its entirety as a message. Well, where does, where does the truth come from? And by what standard are we, are we being judged? If I think that I'm a good person and I'm told that Jesus died for bad people so that they would go to heaven. You think that doesn't apply to you? Why would that apply to me? And if I don't understand the depravity of my soul and that I am a sinner, I have no use for the gospel. And to, to your point, Zach, I think even, even the full-throated conversations about the gospel in the grand scheme of things are probably seed planters too. But I also think we can put too much pressure on ourselves. We're not going to out God God's truth or uh, that maybe that doesn't make, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're going to mess up God's truth. God, like 
I can't put so much pressure on myself that if I say the wrong thing to you, you're going to not accept Jesus or you're not going to become a Christian or you're going to reject the gospel. I think God is way more powerful than that. But you know, so, so spending a lot of time in Uber's drive, you know, around the country when I'm flying and all that stuff, um, you know, there's, there's the Ray Comfort version, you know, like in your best New, New Zealand accent, just say, do you believe there's an afterlife or what happens in the yeah. afterlife? But, uh, you know, you can ask questions like I've had some ardent atheists and they'll, and then you'll just ask the question, well, so you believe in the scientific impossibility that everything came from nothing and you're just quiet and typically so are they. And then there's kind of some questions, you know, I haven't vetted this one, but have you guys heard recently about the discovery of the. Uh, oceans below the crest yeah. of the earth and all that stuff. Bigger yeah. than all the oceans combined yeah. and all that. And how that ties to to Noah the flood. and the flood mm-hmm. bursting from the deep, which doesn't make any sense, you know, to most people. And I haven't investigated, but that'd be an example of a rock, right? And then you yeah. can kind of start to tie that to how do you get back to this? And so what, what I would say to that, even back to, to Matt's point in describing the gospel, whenever I, I did uh, those... Uh, well, I guess whenever I preached at Lewisburg Prison in Pennsylvania, I felt le- I felt more weight because of the importance of what I was doing there, but I felt less pressure. If that's any any, maybe that doesn't make sense. Maybe I'll, no, I'll get I there. think but that makes perfect so sense. Whenever I give speeches, right, I feel weight and pressure because I don't want to look like an idiot, and it's like I need to seem really really smart, and for these people to be like, yeah, this Kyle guy, like let's let's book him again. But when I was at that that prison, it was like, all right, words are coming out of my face. I have a generalized idea of where this is going, but God, this is up to you. Like if, if these men accept you, like the, the, this is on you, you're going to reveal yourself to them. They're going to have to respond to it, but you're going to reveal yourself to them. And I even said in the times that I prayed with those men and for those men, man, I didn't know the next word that was coming. I just didn't. I felt like Kamala Harris. Like I just had no idea the next word that was going to come out of my mouth. So I was just like this living predictive but, text mechanism, but, but think, it was tied to the Holy Spirit. Think about the depth of depravity there though. Even by world standards, they are not good people. I think it's, I think it's, it's got to be so much easier to preach the gospel to a group of people, a group of murderers, a group of, of people who are in prison and by whatever metric you want to judge by there, they are considered bad people. It's much harder to come into privileged Edmund and preach the gospel to people who do good things. They're all buttoned well, up. Yeah, yeah. They got the money. They yeah. got the clothes. I, get, I just, I, I literally just gave a guy 20 bucks. What do you mean I'm a bad person? Like, I helped that guy. Like, it's a much harder to preach there. I do like how Eric turned into a guy from Brooklyn there. So I got the <laughs> oh. money and I got the clothes. Hey, oh, like that kind of thing. So that was, For those of you really not from Edmund, that's that's a really good Edmund accent. Right <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, we got a lot of Guidos walking around Edmund if you guys aren't fully familiar. Hey guys, let's, let's come back to, I, I'd like to go into verses 14, 15, and 16. Matt, if you would read uh, 14 through 16, please. You got it. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the, to the, 20, or to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. <clears throat> the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them <clears throat> for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also per- persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered for the work. Sorry, I was reading through my microphone, and I just didn't move my Bible, so I was. <laughs> <laughs> so I covered it up. Where, where did the words go? I am in the middle of eight. 
sentence and I would like to keep talking. So th- there's a lot here that's kind of packed in, you know, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Um, there's a bunch of business books and, uh, you know, that kind of talk about the leader and, you know, kind of, I eat last or the take the stairs or last, yeah. yeah, those types of things. And then also when it says I did not do so because, or sorry, um, taking the, the rations. Um, but I also, he didn't do these things because of fear of the Lord. That's kind of where he didn't do it because he read a business book and he's like, good business people don't do this. I'm a Jim Collins fan. And so I'm going to kind of go this direction, but he also, the important thing, and this goes back to, I think whenever you were talking about the sheep gate and it was the high priest that were working, it's like, I also persevered in the work on the wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. So they weren't just overseeing the work. They weren't just taking over land and building their personal wealth. Uh, they were getting their hands dirty. And we've all heard the stories now, but it bears repeating when they see the senior pastor taking out the garbage, when they see the CEO uh, cleaning up the crumbs from the uh, birthday party that were left over, when they're doing these things that are considered lowly and they don't think anyone's watching them, because some people do that and it's diabolical. Like they're making sure that they set up the trash and they're like banging the trash can around like, oh man, oh this God, trash such is a mess really here. busy. Yeah. I'm just going to toss it over my shoulder, walk out with a smile on my face. Some people do it that way. But the people that actually mean it, the people of real character, they're doing it because it's just something that needs to be done. Now there will be business teachers that are like, you know, give yourself an hourly rate and don't do any work that is below that hourly rate. So if returning that, that Amazon package is going to take you an hour of your time and that's going to cost you 50 bucks and you're worth a hundred bucks an hour, throw that thing in the garbage. Like, again, we can get off into the weeds on that kind of thing, but there's a lot of wisdom there in verses 14, I, 15, and I heard, 16. I heard the CEO of uh, Toyota once said, I could be getting this wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's right. One of the only questions that he remembers that he's been asked in some of these really big conferences came from a guy in the audience and he said, when you go home, do you take out the trash? That was the question. And this CEO of Toyota, which is one of the most efficiently run companies out there, great processes, that, that's what he remembered. And it was just so indicative. This guy was trying to understand as, a, as an employee how their leadership was thinking and what kind of leadership they had. Um, so I thought it was really wise. The other thing I thought about is Paul is the same. You know, when he's, when he's talking with everybody, he's saying, I was there, I was working beside you. There's nothing that you can hold against me. I wasn't trying to take advantage of you. It it has kind of a consistent theme. Well, and you're at, if you're asking people to do hard things, you yourself need to be doing them. So from time to time I'm invited in, there's a couple of good buddies of mine that are wrestling coaches here at uh, local high schools. And when they start getting a little bit sluggish at some point in the season, they'll bring me in and I'll go basically beat up their kids for, you know, two hours. But the thing that's interesting is Every part of the exercise that I do, which is brutal, like I'm not there to make them have fun. I'm there to kill them. Like it's a brutal exercise and workout routine. I do every single rep and so does their coach. Yeah. And so they're looking at these 30 year old men, you know, in their mid thirties and they're like, God, these men are so old. And like they were born in the 1900s. What are the, how are these guys (laughs) even surviving? But we're doing everything they're doing, but at an intensity level, that's kind of beyond them. It's just like, Oh, oh my gosh. And like, but that's the thing is like, that's almost like an apologia or apologia of that type, which by the way, no one says tomato, like nobody. So that's not like a tomato, tomato <laughs> thing, potato, potato. No one says potato. Uh, okay. Okay. Just, You're, just that's, that's uh, a little sidebar. Uh, to at, at, at risk of sounding like I'm beating a dead horse, how does Nehemiah know that he should be treating, that he should not be doing these things? It's, it, it all goes back to the fear of God. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
to your point about pastors missing the boat on some things, I think a lot of pastors will, when they, when they talk about Jesus being asked about the greatest commandment, it is, it is always it, it, the modern past, not always, but a lot of modern pastors will answer that with love your neighbor as yourself. But we only know how to do that because of the first commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if, it, it all hinges on that. It's not the other way around. It's love God, and then the people come. And that's how all of those laws are written. It's the love of the, of the Lord. Then in turn, it's the love of people. And I, I, I think we as a modern church miss that something. It's not just loving people, because if without fear of the Lord, without the love of God, we don't even know how to do that. Not biblically, not, not rightly. Yeah, we don't have a foundation yeah. by which to even base our actions. Mm-hmm. But let's go ahead and round out Nehemiah 5. So, Zach, if you wouldn't mind, read 17, 18, and 19, please. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was, now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And so I think this is an important thing here. I think this opens us up to a discussion about good works. Uh, because, you know, when you get into the discussion, it's like, okay, how do we talk about fruit? How do we talk about good works and all those types of things? This is another example of Nehemiah not being above the people that he's serving with. Uh, He doesn't want to live in comfort while his people suffer. Uh, We've seen plenty of examples of this in modern modern military, so even Vietnam, the GWAT, different things like that, where there were officers that had the capability to kind of travel around in luxury and safety and all those different things, but they're like, no, I'm going to sleep with the grunts. No, I'm going to be on the ground, those types of things. And we all have a much deeper level of respect for those men just kind of implicitly just because like that's wow that's awesome like they they could have got all these things but they chose to eat last they chose to to be uncomfortable just like with everybody else but then at the end he's like he says remember and it's not because god forgets but he's just like hey just as a reminder just throwing this out there for my good oh my god all that i've done for this people please remember all that i've done for these people but i still think that that's a good lesson for us that it's okay to say to God, like, hey, look at these things that I've done because there's a right ordering in my heart yeah. because I'm doing this to honor you, not to gain points, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and Paul did that too. And you, it, it almost, it kind of, like, if you just read it, you're like, oh, man, it's kind of being arrogant. Look at him kind of, but he's making a defense of what he's, what he's done and why he's done it and his heart behind it. It's not, he's not trying to, like, say, look at me. He's just... Saying, look, this is this is what was offered. This is what was available, but I did not take it. I did not partake of this because of this. Because I was just thinking of like Uriah when David called him back and said, "Well, come on in, you know, go eat, go be be with your wife or whatever." And he's like, "No, no, 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 I can't. How can I do that when my men are out there fighting and he slept, you know, outside and whatever?" <clears throat> but anyways, yeah, that was my point. I think that's also, it's also a foreshadowing because Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. And I think getting down and washing his disciples' feet, that's, the, I mean, the perfect description and perfect picture of servant leadership. And I think that's Nehemiah's just, yeah, just reminding God, hey, I'm serving my people. 
for you? I think it's freeing too, in a way, like we talked about the Psalms earlier and you're crying out and you're saying, and, and I think the Bible's pretty clear that you, you should do that. And that's a, I hate saying this, right? But safe space. It's a space that you can have a discussion about whatever. And there are things that you do for God on this earth that nobody else knows about. And I think that's your vent. I think in modern culture, there's a lot of talk around therapy and different forms of meditation and all that. Well, it's pretty much built in here. You can open up, have a discussion, and it's, it's free, free for all. You say whatever you want, and God's going to help, help work through that. I think that's great. There's a lot of lessons there from Nehemiah 5, but we're going to have to leave it there, guys. But come back next Sunday where we're going to dig into Nehemiah 6. So guys, make sure that you read that this week so that you'll be prepared for that discussion. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the only link I've got there is linked to our donation page, undaunted.life backslash donate. Guys, if you're listening to this right now, this is because we have donors. We have guys giving to us on a monthly basis and sometimes on a one-time basis to make sure that they can support our operations so that we can do things like the podcast, like the forging table, like all the stuff that we have coming down the pike this year and next year. So if you want to be part of that and be a part of the mission to equipment around the globe to push back darkness, please hop on board and be one of our financial donors. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self titled debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah